morning, everybody. Okay, it was pretty pathetic, but I'm glad to see you anyway. I am, uh, it's been a while since I feel like I've been up here because of the holidays. I'm so thankful to be back. And we are starting a, a new series uh, today, going to be plugging through uh, the book of John. Um, but uh, I'll explain a little bit more uh, what's coming our way here in a little bit. But before that, I want to walk us through a few announcements. I actually heard that uh, you might have heard my voice earlier in the service um, because my microphone was on while I was talking to someone in the foyer. So apologize for that. And um, good thing it wasn't one of those bathroom moments, you know. <laughs> so really, uh, really thankful that didn't happen. Um, but now we're here. And I want to just make you aware of a few things going on at the church. You can... Uh, find all of this on the bulletin or on the website, but something that I'm really excited about is coming up this week. We will have a joint prayer time in this room from 6.30 to 8 on Wednesday with Vision Church, and uh, Jerome Gay is a lead pastor there, dear friend, and we uh, did this last year, uh, but are really looking forward to joining together two bodies in this room to just seek after God's face together. We'll worship through song and we will just spend time praying and asking God to move uh, not only in the lives of our own, of the congregations, but also in uh, this city. So we really encourage you to come. Uh, as I said, it's 6.30 uh, to 8. And uh, really looking forward to spending that time with you guys in prayer. Other announcements you can find on the back. We have a women's seminar coming up on January the 23rd on the presence of God Highly recommend uh, that to you. And then we will be doing a baby dedication on January the 24th. So, but for our time now, let's dive in. I want to read, um, we're going to look at John 11 and 12. And I want to read just the first few verses in chapter 11. So I'll read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 11. And then we'll run all the way over to chapter 12. And I'll read verses 1 through 8. Okay? So John 11, 1 and 2. And then we'll go to John 12, 1 through 8. And then I'll pray and we'll kind of explain where we're headed for the uh, next few months together in the Word. So John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Word of God says this. Now a certain man was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now let's run over to chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father, we ask. We ask that in this moment, you might so choose by your infinite mercy, you might choose to meet with us in clear, significant power. Lord, you promise that every time we gather in your name, you are here with us. So I do believe that you are here 
I believe that you love us. And with your great love that sent your son to the cross, you are going to pour it out upon us today. We ask that we would experience that love in richness and fullness. We ask that it would give strength to the weary and joy to the downcast, hope to the hopeless, company for the lonely, comfort for the weary. We ask, Father, that you would come right now in this moment and you would meet us exactly where we are. You would open our eyes because our greatest need is not physical or emotional healing. It's to see you. And so I ask, above all, please, that we would see you today. Help us, I pray, to love you. Fill us with yourself in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's say you invited me over to your house. And I said, sure, sounds great. You say, okay, come over about five o'clock. We're gonna spend some time together. So I show up, five o'clock, walk into your house. The house smells amazing because there's food. And we walk into the kitchen. Say, can I take your coat? Sure. Um, About ready to eat. And I say, hey, let's go past the kitchen. Let's sit on the couch. Okay, well, you're the host, find it a little odd, but you say, okay. So we sit down on the couch, and I'm sitting with you, and I say, hey, can you tell me a little bit about plumbing? Because I knew that you actually had done some plumbing and fixed some stuff in your house, and so I said, I really want you to tell me some more about plumbing. And so you began to tell me about how you fixed your toilet or how you fixed certain things, and I began to take notes just crazy, asking a ton of questions, taking a ton of notes, and I got it. And then you're a little weirded out by all this. And I say, thanks so much. This was a great time. I really appreciate it. And I walk out the door. Food's still there. You're a little caught off guard at this moment. What just happened? How would you feel? You'd want to call me some names probably. (laughs) You'd think, what was all that? Why does that strike you as odd? It's because you expected not information transfer, but a relationship. You expected to sit down over a meal and to interact. You expected me to listen to you and you to listen to me. You expected a sense of dialogue, sharing what has been happening in people's lives, interaction, person to person, face to face. You expected a relationship. You invited me over for a relationship. The God of the universe, in his amazing kindness, he sent his son to die for sinners who didn't deserve it, that's you and me, so that we might be invited into a relationship. His word is the place where he says, come, meet with me. But his word is not the place where we gain a concept or get information. It is the place where we meet with the glory of the living God. It is an invitation to know a person, to hear his voice, to taste and see that he's good, to trust his promises. It is not stiff. It is not about note-taking. It is about a relationship. And as we begin this year, there is no greater thing of importance than to know that the God of the universe invites you into an intimate relationship with him. And he begs for us not to twist it around and to turn it into just getting information. We are not here this morning to just get smarter. Heaven forbid. We are here that we might know him and that knowledge would trickle to the heart and we might love the one we know. Knowledge is not just here. It is an experience of engagement with a person, the God of the universe. 
And so what we are doing here is taking what I genuinely believe is John's intent as he writes the book of John is that he wants us to know Jesus the person. Wants us to know him as who he is. But what we're going to do on either side of the John series, the book of John, we're going to start in John 13 next week. And it's going to go all the way through the end of the book and it'll lead us all the way till Easter. But on either side of that John series, we're doing a series entitled Forever Changed. Forever Changed. Talking about people who in the Bible, when they saw the glory of the living God, they were forever changed. Last week we saw the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And what happened when she met Christ. And today, we're going to take another character from the book of John that'll help us get into the book of John next week. It is a woman named Mary. Following the John series, we're going to do four more individuals. But right now, this is just a lead-in into our series, which will begin next week on the book of John. But today, let's hone in on this one woman who was forever changed because of an encounter with the glory of the living God. This woman's name is Mary. And when Mary encounters the glory of the living God, she encounters three things, and that's what's going to frame what we do today. One, she encounters, one, the sorrow-filled Savior. Two, when she encounters God, she encounters the resurrecting Savior. And three, she encounters the worthy Savior. And as a result, she's forever changed. So let's look at it together. As we come to John 11, which is where we began, so if you're in John 12, flip back there. We're going through John 11. Our points will come from John 11 and John 12. It is here in John 11 where we experience the last of seven what are called signs in the book of John. John specifically uses this word sign to highlight seven markers to confirm Jesus as Messiah. These seven instances, these seven miracles, he calls them signs, were used by the author of John to highlight that Jesus is the Messiah. And this is the seventh of seven. And these Miracles are just remarkable. It is, of course, the turning of water into wine. It is healing an official son from long distance. It is helping a 38-year-old invalid recover. It is providing large quantity of foods to the 5,000. It is a recovery of man's lifelong blindness, and now he can see. And now we come to chapter 11, where it is the literal raising of a man from death. And what we see here is three characters are introduced at the very beginning. You have a man who is sick. His name is Lazarus, and he's got two sisters, Mary and Martha. We're going to hone in on Mary because her story continues on into chapter 12 of John. But you'll also see a little bit of what happens in Martha's life as she encounters God. And obviously what happens in Lazarus's life as uh, he goes from death to life. So let's look first at how Mary meets God and the first picture she sees is of a sorrow-filled Savior. To get there, we need to understand the story that's going forward. So let's just read here in the, in the Bible. Lazarus is ill, verse 3. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Shows previous relationship. Lord here is probably the use of sir rather than how we use Lord as boss or one who has radically kind of saved us. This is a sense of more, than, more likely just a high term of respect, 
um, because we begin to see later on there's a significant change in their uh, faith stance, and God is kind of calling them, or Christ is kind of calling them out on these things. So it says, Lord, the one whom you love is ill, and they had seen Jesus do some pretty unprecedented things, right? So it's like, okay, this guy's got a direct line here, and I think he should do something about my sick brother. So I'm going to send for him, but verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said this to those that were around him, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, as hearers, that's felt like maybe a little cryptic. He's not technically saying that this illness will not kill Lazarus. He's foretelling here what's going to happen as death will be overcome. Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so let's make sure we have this connection. Verse 4, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The Father is really passionate in the book of John that the Son gets the same type of glory and honor that he gets. One more clear evidence, and this is why the Jews wanted to stone Jesus, one more clear evidence that Jesus is God himself. But here he says, it's for the glory of God And then the next verse says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Okay, so Jesus is aiming for the glory of his father. And he loves Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So what does he do? Therefore, so, verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two days. I think everybody in the room at face value would say that's not love. You've got the power to overcome the sickness. And it doesn't seem very loving that you wouldn't do something about it. Now, something is at play here. There's a distance being uh, involved where Jesus, more than likely, the travel that it would take for Jesus to get to um, where they are in Bethany would take probably two days, and we know later on in the story that Lazarus already dies before that two days is up. However, there's something more going on here. That is, it is one of the f- clearest places in the Scripture where God's love for his glory and his love for us are shown not to be at odds or in conflict, but to be one pursuit. It means this. It means that the most loving thing that God can do for you and I is to cause us to see his glory. Anything less would not be the maximum effort of love. Our greatest need is that we see the greatness of God, that we encounter the living God, that God gets the glory he is due and the praise and honor that he is worth. That is what will satisfy the deepest cravings, the deepest longings. It is what we were created for and crafted for. Anything less than that as the end, that we see his glory fall short of the fullest expression of love that we could give. So for Jesus, there is zero contradiction here that what I'm about to do is going to so show off mine and my father's glory That love demands I stay because it's going to help you see my glory. This is radical in our culture today. Love is defined as what makes me feel good and love is defined of anything that would relieve us of suffering immediately. Biblically speaking, The greatest relief of suffering that we need is the gift of eternal life. And the greatest gift that God could give us is the glory of his son. Because in seeing that and believing in him, we are granted eternal life. So love, defined here by Jesus, is I love you so much, I'm going to display my glory. You find that? You get this connection? They're not in contradiction. It's one pursuit. 
I love you so much, I've got to show you my greatness. So, what happens? He stays put, Lazarus dies. Verse 14, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Those are his followers around him. But let us go to him. This shows just remarkable divine insight. Like, there's no telegram. There's this sense of, I am God. Lazarus is dead. It's now time to roll. And so, his followers, this is done so that they might believe. So let us go to them. And so they travel. Now, interestingly, in these days, there was this kind of superstitious belief that when someone died, their spirit would hover over them until the fourth day. And then on the fourth day, the person was really dead. Well, there's no biblical precedence for this whatsoever. For to depart from the body is to be with Christ. If you are in Christ, you trust in him. There's this sense of immediacy, this sense of you die, you die, that's a shell, it's not you. Here, he still knows the culture around him and when he arrives, Lazarus is dead four days. So like there's no objection that anybody could bring. Well, maybe he just wasn't really dead. That spirit was kind of still hanging around. No, dead. Dead in the tomb. Why? So that the glory of God might be seen. So Martha comes up. And she has an encounter. Jesus comes, Martha encounters him, and she begins to say, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, I think this is another use of that same way she used Lord before. Sir, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. I've seen this happen before, she's saying. You've got this direct line, some unprecedented kind of connection. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And now Martha, she follows the line of the Pharisees. And so they believe in a resurrection from the dead. So she's like, well, I know that he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am it's me. I am the resurrection and the life. The last day has broken into the right now. In me, I'm the reason dead things come alive. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this and she says yes Lord I believe that you are the Christ the son of God who is coming into the world change the grip of the heart no longer Lord as in general respected individual Christ son of God I trust in you and now she wants to connect Mary to the one she saw. So when she said, had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. So Mary runs, and she says almost the exact same words that Martha does. She says in verse 32 of John 11, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Where Martha seemed to kind of have it together, Mary was a blubbering mess. And Jesus gently cares for her, comes for her, calls for her. She comes in massive tears. And when Jesus saw her weeping, though, his response is unique. It might sound as if when you read this, 
there is first a sense of um, just sadness over her tears. Like, I really hate my little girl is crying. But the words that are used here are far more profound than that. The word used here is actually used in other places in the scriptures and other contexts in that day and time of almost, um, it was used at one time of an, an animal that snorts. And I know that blesses you. It's like, well, okay, really? How does that help me? But it was like this sense of, <clears throat> it actually reflects a sense of hatred and outrage, which it would be an odd response if I see someone weeping in front of me that I might be filled with a sense of outrage. And you might hear that as like, oh, he's angry at Mary for crying? Real? No, 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 no. Don't go there. Just think of what he's seeing. His friend Lazarus has died. Martha was filled with unbelief when she first came. Mary now kind of has this same general sense of unbelief. Yes, but massive grief. There is brokenness. This is not how it's supposed to be. This is not what is supposed to be happening. And I guarantee you, I have counseled with many, many people through the loss of children, through the loss of spouses, through the loss of individuals that they love, through betrayal, through difficulty, and you who have experienced intense grief, you know that emotion of sheer hatred that this brokenness exists. I hate that this has happened. And our Savior, he hates it. He's outraged by it. He's troubled in his spirit. Sin is gross. And you need to be okay in your grieving journey to hate injustice not to hate people not to hate God Jesus did not allow this hatred for injustice to sour into an anger towards his father no 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 but it was a hatred a hatred that sin is in the world, that brokenness exists, that this is not how it should be. And many times, this is what people miss when they are walking alongside a grieving one, someone who's been betrayed or someone who's been hurt from the outside, enemies against. You almost, especially if you haven't experienced it, you tell them to get over it. Why don't you trust God? Just trust him in this moment. Yes, that's true, and amen. But make sure that you hate what is deplorable. Make sure that you hate the fact that injustice has been done, that death exists, that sin abounds. Our Savior, in his sorrow-filledness, his sorrow was filled with hatred. It was hatred over the intense suffering. But his sorrow was not only filled with hatred, it was also filled with hurt. His sorrow was filled with hurt. And we see this in verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus weeps. It is not a hatred over the brokenness of the world that is callous and just angry and self-righteous. It is a hatred that leads to tears and brokenness and sadness. And I am struck so afresh as I read this passage. Even a ton of unbelievers know the shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept, right? I mean, so it's like you don't even have to have been in a church ever before in your life, and you probably have still heard, hey, because these are some of the fun facts. You know, oh, what's the longest chapter in the Bible? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? You know, some things you just try to get facts. Well, this is a fact that everybody knows. Jesus wept. 
But heaven forbid that this would be a sheer fact that we know. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Woo, glory. No, our Savior cried. Tears. He hurt for Mary. He hated her pain. He hated the death of his friend Lazarus. He hurt for those who hurt. He cries that sin disorients everyone. He sheds tears over the fact that suffering abounds in this world. His compassion is shocking and his manliness is driven by tears. Tears over pain and tears over injustice. So not only is his sorrow filled with hatred, but it's filled with hurt. And not only is it filled with hurt, but it's filled with the ability to identify. Do we have a sorrowful Savior who can identify with your pain? He knows that our growth doesn't come despite suffering, but through suffering. He knows what it's like to go through pain. It's of Jesus that it said in Hebrews 5.8 that he learned obedience through what he suffered. Our Savior learned something through the journey of suffering. And so will we. Suffering is not a path that has no point. We don't learn despite it. We learn through it. Just as our Savior did. And he knows what it's like to want suffering removed and to call out to God about it, right? Isn't that what happened in the garden? Isn't that what happened in the garden when he, his sweat was like drops of blood? There was such intense, troubled spirit. There was grief that happened, and he cried out to his father, and he said, if you can, remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but your will be done. He knows what it's like to call out and to want the pain to be removed and to hear, that's not the path for you. He knows what it's like to be told, wait. He knows what it's like for there to be a delay. And for you who are suffering, our sorrow-filled Savior is not unable to identify with some of you the long journey of suffering that you're on. He can identify with it because his suffering led him all the way to death, even death on a cross, being mocked and betrayed. Our Savior suffered so that he would be able to empathize and to care for the sufferer. And so our response to the sorrow-filled Savior, our response is that we, we don't question his love we don't question his love, and we don't question his ability to identify with us. We can't just say, this is unique to us. Our Savior knows. And then while we wait, while we wait through pain, while we wait through the unknown, while we wait through tears, while we wait through the depression, while we wait for the anxiety to be relieved, that waiting is an active waiting. And it's not filled with hate. For God, hate for circumstances, yes, but it's filled with more of an empathetic love for others because our Savior has loved us. We see a sorrow-filled Savior, but we also see a resurrecting Savior. The resurrecting Savior is miraculous. The reason I choose these words is because I want them to be handles that when you pick up your Bible tomorrow morning, and your mind struggles to even think about anything at all, that you would have three words that would help you know who you're going to meet with that morning. You're meeting with one who knows what it's like to cry and knows your pains. You're meeting with one now that is a resurrected Savior. But I said he's a resurrecting Savior, which means he's got power. 
He was raised from the dead, yes, but here he is overcoming death. And so we see in verse 38, Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha said, "Uh, this guy's dead. It's going to stink. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died was walking, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth, and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. He is alive. Now this is the last day resurrection breaking into the here and now. And this is what we pray for. We pray when we pray that God would use his last day power to break into the here and now. That God would take the same power that will wipe away sin and he would break into the here and now and he would overcome my propensity towards one sin or another. And he wants this relationship. He wants this give and take. He wants us to cry out to him, the one who has the power to overcome all disease. And he wants us to call out to him to bring healing in this moment in the here and now. He might do it. He might not. But we know this, that he loves us and he is doing all that he does for his glory, which is the most loving thing that he can do for us. And so we go, we pray, we plead, we meet with him, we encounter him, and we call out for his last day power to break into the here and now. And this power is pretty miraculous. This week, I don't know if you read it, but North Korea, of course, supposedly did a test of a hydrogen bomb. I had not known much of hydrogen bombs. There's only six countries in the entire world that have one of these things. And, of course, it's pretty ominous to think that such a ruthless, uh, egotistical, narcissistic kind of leader would have such power at his fingertips, but still questionable as to kind of how all this rolls. But I didn't know what's a hydrogen bomb. Only thing I knew was an atom bomb. So did a little research. Atom bomb, it's... um, Made with, I'm not going to go into all of this because A, I don't understand it, and, uh, and B, it, it just won't help us here. So, but it's made with fission, overfusion, okay? I feel like I need to call up some of our uh, professors here in the room or teachers to come up, especially those who are in the science field, but I'm not. Um, fission, what it does is it disintegrates heavy elements to make them lighter, and in so doing, it creates an explosion. This is the atom bomb. We know that the atom bomb was dropped over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The death tolls over one of those in Hiroshima, the death tolls was 70,000 to 145,000. One bomb. Nagasaki, fairly similar. You have about 125 to 245,000 people killed with an atom bomb. They say that the one way to think about it, although the atom bomb uses fission, the other uses fusion, and that the atom bomb is almost like a trigger in the hydrogen bomb that makes it go. Meaning, something that kills 70 to 140,000 people in one city is a trigger to this other bomb. The, the size of it just kind of, it, it doesn't compute. It kind of blows me away. But here, When we talk about resurrection from the dead, no man at all can come close to this kind of power. Yes, we're really good at power to destroy things, but not to give life. We don't know how to do it. To take what is dead and to resurrect it. We have the power of a resurrecting Savior dwelling inside of us who therefore can overcome what our greatest needs are, can meet, meet us in the depths of our pain, can give us strength where we feel like we have no more energy, can give us hope where we are hopeless, and can overcome death and get us to the end. 
We have a resurrecting Savior, so we have to be confident that every single one of his promises in here, he can deliver on at any given moment. And so what he calls for us to do is to trust him, that he can deliver on his promises, that he can deliver on being a resurrecting Savior. But now finally what we see is what happened in Mary's life. When Mary saw her brother raised and she encountered the living God, what happened? And we have chapter 12. Can you imagine that meal? Six days before the Passover, Jesus comes back to Bethany. He's putting his life in danger because there's a ton of people wanting to kill him. And there he is, a dead man, just kind of hanging out, eating some food with you. I would still like want to pinch him every now and then. You know, it's like, you know, is this real? Like, is this happening? And they're sitting there eating, having dinner. Martha is serving. She's good at serving. And Lazarus was reclining at table. I don't, that doesn't mean he was a lazy bum. That's just kind of the description of kind of what you did as, as a meal. It was a relationship. And Mary does something. These stories are not put back to back for no reason. They are put back to back for a reason. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, nard is from northern India. The Romans would use it to anoint with this instance tells us that there was, a, there was perfume there. There's two other accounts of this in Matthew and in Mark. And as you look at Matthew's account of this, we begin to see something. So what I want to do is I want to look at John's real quickly and Matthew's. And there's one thing, that, there's a couple things that are different. And I believe this is what happened to Mary as she experiences the living God. So Mary... Therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, and the house filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And then Judas Iscariot said, this is crazy expensive. It's 300 denarii. That's a year's wage. Okay? Anywhere from 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 grand, depending on who you are, what your job is. It's a, it's a, it's a year's wage, okay? You too might say, now was that the wisest use of funds? But Jesus says, he said in this moment, leave her alone. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now let's look at the account of, in Matthew 26. It says this, Matthew 26, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, so we know whose house they were in, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. Now, John said the feet. Matthew says the head. Matthew brings them both, or Mark brings them both together as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for large sums of money and given to the poor. But Jesus was aware of this and said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing. For you always have the poor with you, but you don't always have me. In pouring, and now he tells us a little bit more behind the scenes. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Matthew's emphasis is that the anointing on the head was this washing and preparing the body for burial. It was a prophetic moment saying, I am preparing this man for burial. This is Matthew's emphasis, but John has a different point. John's emphasis, although, yes, it's about his burial, it's about more. It's about a woman who was so struck by the God now that she beheld that she took a lowly spot and the one who was before her brought her low. Feet were brought out 
her hair, which was very uncommon in that day to wipe someone's feet with your hair, it was all screaming lowly humility. And what ends the passage is, the poor are always with you, but I'm only here for a little bit. I am worthy of a year's wage and so much more. I am so glorious that it strikes you low. This is exactly what Isaiah 66 says in the scriptures. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. In the scriptures it says, I dwell with those who are lowly and contrite and tremble at my word. It is the lowly. That's what happens when you meet the living God. It brings you low. He is exalted high and you give everything for him. It's this reckless abandon. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense in the world's eyes. But to him, it's worship. Worship that he is worthy of. And you know something? Luke doesn't have the account of Mary wiping the feet of Jesus with her hair. But he does have this account. The account of Martha serving and serving and serving and getting really anxious. And Mary found at the feet of Jesus. And it's when Mary's found at the feet of Jesus that you hear these words. Verse 41. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. And Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken from her. When she met the living God, there is one thing, one thing that we are to be about. And when you meet the living God, you can still be a sinner, can't you? Martha was, wasn't she? We all are. Can be fraught with anxiety. But Mary is an example for us here that there is one thing necessary. It is to engage the person, not just to get facts, not just to gather a concept, but to meet with the living God every day and to plead with all of our might that his resurrecting power, his last day power would break into the here and now and we would see people saved, we would see bodies healed, we would see joy come to the despondent, we would see love run through our lives and he would use us to make much of his name. We want an encounter with the living God. And so my prayer for you, for myself, is that we would not take his word as casual and we would not take his his invitation as just for information. We would realize that he wants us to hear his voice, to listen to him, to store his word in our heart. And I want to end with this. I was reading a little article this week on a friend, um, pastor in the area, J.D. Greer. J.D. talked about how when he was growing up, his parents drug him to Awana. Awana was this kids' ministry that kind of you did fun games, but you also memorized a lot of scripture. And he was like, well, I went because I was supposed to. I went because I wanted to be around my friends or I wanted to be around other people. I had very few, if any, pure motives. But he said at age 15, way past Awana, God stirred in his heart to search out the scriptures. And he said at age 15 and 10 minutes over the word, he did more in 10 minutes than he had done in 15 years. But what he did was he took that scripture that was stored up in the heart, and when the flame of the spirit came, he said it was like latent dynamite. And there was an explosion in my heart that could not be explained, he said. Because the word was there. The word was there. Friends, I wake up too, not wanting to read, not feeling anything from the word. But oh, as we raise our kids, as we spend time with God, we need his word hidden in our hearts so that when he chooses not to delay any longer and he comes, and the flame of his spirit comes down, there would be an explosion in the human heart because there is the word of God ready to explode forth in our souls. 
our God wants to meet with us, and he has promised to do so in his holy word. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I ask that we would have an encounter with you, the living God. And I ask, oh God, that you would move in our midst. I ask that we would refuse to just have our intellect stimulated and we would refuse to just move from concept to concept. And God, that we would say, this knowledge, what I'm learning, this is meant for a deeper relationship with a person, with you. And that, God, that we would see you're one who is not cold as a person, but you're sorrow-filled. And you're not one who is sorrowful and yet unable to do anything about it. You're filled with power. You're able to raise from the dead. And so we want to call out to you in relationship, in prayer, and ask for your last day power when we'll see you in face-to-face in all of your glory to break through in the here and now. You have done it in the fact that many of us are in this room, and God, we ask you to do it again. We ask for more and more and more of you, and we want to be persistent. We don't want to give up. We want to keep praying and pleading that you will move in our midst. And Father, we want to declare this morning that you are worthy. You are worthy that we say the one necessary thing is what we are to be about, to bow at your feet, to get low, to tremble at your word, to store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Oh God, I pray, give us desire where the desire hasn't been. Give us a hunger to experience and encounter you that we might be forever changed like we have seen today with Mary. We ask that now as we take the Lord's Supper that God, you would you would just make this about a relationship, not about a ritual or a routine. We would declare our need for a crucified Savior and praise you because you love us so. We ask all this in Jesus' name.